0: But well, I would invite you to take a Bible out if you want to follow along. You can open up an app on your phone. Use the bulletin that you have. We're going to be looking now at Ezra chapter seven. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we're making a shift in terms of looking at God's people and this returning home process that they have. The people first returned in 538 B.C., and it wasn't until another 20 years later in 516 when the physical temple was complete. But then today in Ezra chapter 7, verse 1, when he says, now after this, he's basically summarizing 60 years of history. It was 60 years since the temple was complete in 516 by the time Ezra shows up and God calls him to go to Jerusalem. And the reason Ezra had to go Along with all the people that came with him, the Levites, the priests, the singers, the keepers, the temple servants, is that while the temple was there, they had a beautiful building, a beautiful church. The foundation for their life together was in shambles, it was crumbling. We can get some clues, not from Ezra, but from other books of the Bible. For example, the prophet Haggai, who prophesied during this time, he writes this about God's people he says that now this is what the Lord Almighty says give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. In other words, what Haggai is telling them, warning them about, is that their priorities are in the wrong place. They're scheming, striving for things of this world, and they'd neglected the Im- most important part about their return in the first place, the spiritual life. The rebuilding of, yes, the physical temple, but the spiritual life was the most important thing. They neglected it. We read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll look at that next week. They also, the leaders of Jerusalem, the leaders of the temple had forsaken the sacrifices, the festivals. They had become wealthy while other people suffered and were poor. They married off their wives to foreign, uh, or their men to foreign wives, not because there wasn't a lack of women within the Jerusalem, uh, town of Jerusalem, but because they were not trusting God with their political identity. They were making deals for themselves. In other words, things had, in those 60 years, really fallen apart. But Ezra points us to the real reason for the return look with me at verse 10 the character of Ezra is what we're going to focus on today it says that for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord this is the word of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel that was his purpose now as we study this and as we think about our own lives in our own context here 2021 Denver, Colorado, wherever you're watching from home, there's two things I wanna look at today, two blessings, really, if we could set our heart on God's word like Ezra does. And we're gonna look at foundations. The word of God is the foundation of how you view yourself. This is your identity. And then we'll look at the word of God as the foundation for how you live in this world, your purpose, identity, and purpose. Let's start with our identity. This is a picture of what's called the Silver Bridge. It was built in 1928, and there's nothing really uh, spectacular about this bridge. This style of architecture was used in bridges all over the world. What is unique is that this was somewhat of a structural gamble because the engineer who designed it said that he could build it with half the steel, therefore half the cost. The problem with his design, and the reason I call it a gamble, is that it had to be made to exact specifications. One note off one wrong bolt wrong wrong cable not placed in the correct absolute perfect place would be a disaster well for 40 years this bridge worked it carried people between ohio and west virginia hundreds and thousands of cars daily until december 15th 1967 disaster struck the bridge collapsed right at the peak of rush hour 46 people lost their lives it was a horrible disaster And when the structural engineers that were brought in to investigate this, they came and they they couldn't at first find a cause for this uh, breakage. They couldn't figure out what was going on until they looked closer. They examined with uh, uh, machines or, um, I don't even know why I can't think of that word. Look, I just got back from vacation. This is my excuse. (laughs) You come up here and preach. They had to look closer is what I'm trying to say. And they couldn't discover what was going on until one of the engineers noticed a fissure, a small crack, couldn't be seen by the naked eye, point one inch deep. And as a result of the pressure of years of traffic of the cars, this one inch, point one inch, sorry, deep fissure or crack, unknown to them, this defect caused the bridge to collapse and da- dangerous, horrible disaster upon people. Now I bring this up for this reason. I think it's a great illustration of what happens to our own hearts as we walk through this world. These fissures or these cracks, these defects, all of us can admit, whether you're here as a Christian, or if you're not a Christian here today, you're exploring Christianity, we all have experienced what I'll call a defect in our heart. Here's what I mean. Things like anxiety, worry, depression, where we do things that we don't want to do, we know it's wrong, but somehow we find ourselves doing it. It points to our human condition that there's something wrong with our hearts. Well, there's two different ways then, speaking of identity, that we can deal with this disruption, these defects in our hearts, and I want to explore that by looking at John chapter 8. Go with me there. John chapter 8, the gospel reading that Pastor Abel just read, and listen to what Jesus says. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, he's talking about these defects in our heart. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, and what Jesus is doing is giving us a working definition of what causes these things in the first place. First of all, he says, and he defines brokenness in our life as the result of sin, and Jesus said, sin causes all the pain, all the suffering, all the things that's going on in our heart that we can't control, that we can't explain, that we don't like. He defines that as sin. Second of all in this verse, he says that all human beings sin. It's not just a few of us, it's not just those who are morally corrupt. Actually, this is a human condition that inf- impacts every single one of us. That's number two. And then number three, he says that we can't save ourselves. That's what it means to be a slave to sin. A slave cannot free themselves, a slave is, is stuck in their situation, and Jesus is saying that all human beings sin and that we can't save ourselves. Now, here's what's important to know about this text. In the context, John chapter eight, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, they were known as Pharisees. The Pharisees, like Ezra, loved the word of God, they really did. The problem with the Pharisees, though, if you'll accept this, is they actually loved the word of God too much. And here's what I mean. They loved the word of God, the laws of God so much that they created 613 other laws to put on top of the law of God to control people, to try and stop them from sinning. Their intention, I think, was good, but at the end of the day, the law itself became their God, and they lost sight of the lawgiver. They lost sight of grace they lost sight of mercy. And as a result, if you didn't follow one of these laws, you were shunned, you were shamed, you were kicked out of the community. Earlier in John chapter eight, we see an account where Jesus saves a woman. She was caught uh, in adultery and the religious leaders are gonna stone her. They're gonna kill her for that sin. See, the law of God became a God of its own. They forgot the lawgiver, and they focused and had pride in their own ability to falsely fulfill the law. Now, that's the Christian worldview. Jesus is directly attacking that false notion that, that we can save ourselves, that it's up to us. Let's now look at and compare the Christian worldview to what I'll call the cultural worldview. Now, first of all, if you examine our culture in which we live, I'm talking about the movies that you watch, the shows you watch on TV, music you listen to, the way you know, the articles that you read on blogs, podcasts, that's what I'm calling our culture. I think that the culture actually rejects sin as a word. There's no such thing as sin in our current culture. I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, recently, a book came to my attention. It's called "Untamed" by the author Glennon Doyle. And Glennon grew up, called herself a Christian. She had a horrible life. She experienced addictions, abuses. And as a result, she walked away from the Christian faith, and now she's an incredibly, incredibly popular author. Her new book, Untamed, has sold over 2 million copies. It was just released. 7 million people a day visit her blog. She's incredibly influ- influential. But in a chapter in her book, she says that the reason we experience shame is because Christians in particular have invented this thing called sin. And that sin actually keeps, especially women, in a position of shame. And her radical way of dealing with that is to ignore it, to pretend or to not call anything sinful, but you yourself need to find out how to live in this world on your own. You take the world by its hands, you live however you want to, then you're going to experience freedom. Do you see the difference? She says this in her book, I will not stay, not ever again, in a room or conversation or relationship or institution that requires me to abandon myself. See, her God is herself. And her God then, and the rules that she puts across her life to govern herself, she's not looking on anything like the Word of God, like the Christian worldview would do. She finds and picks and chooses it how she wants to. That's an example in our culture that there's no such thing as sin. Number two, the culture teaches that only some are bad. Culture teaches that only some are bad, therefore the culture looks for people to blame for the problems in this world. And a great example of this, I've shared this illustration before with you, but several years ago we had some neighbors, really good friends of ours, and over a course of a few years we got to know them very well, and one time we're having a conversation and my neighbor says, she knows that I work at a church, and she says, let me get this straight. Are you saying that because I don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to hell? Always a fun party conversation starter when you're <laughs> hanging out with your neighbors to go to hell and talk about that. But ultimately, as we were having this conversation, her reaction to me and the reason she was, was fighting against that is she said this, but I'm a good person. I'm a good person, I'm not like those other people that sin in this world, the, the thieves, the murderers, you know, Hitler, Hitler's always on that list. Hey, I'm not Hitler. But you see what she was doing? She's following the cultural worldview that only some are bad, and therefore you must point blame at other people who are worse than you to live in this world with peace. And then finally, the Christian worldview is, and we confess it at the beginning of our service, that's why we begin our time of worship in confession, is that we can't save ourselves. The cultural worldview is this, only you can save yourself. If there's no such thing as sin, if there's no such thing as an outside divine source that rules our lives, then it truly is up to you to fix the brokenness in your own heart, the worries, the anxieties, the fears, the temptations, the struggle. It's up to you. And here's a great example of this. I find this really funny. I was looking through a a magazine called Men's Health the other day, and a guy writes in, and this is to the letter to the editor. He's looking for advice. He writes, I hate failing. Is there any way to stop obsessing about what went wrong? I hate failing, yet I keep obsessing about the mistakes that I'm making in my life. And this person, I don't know if this is a doctor, I don't know if it's a psychologist, but the advice that they give to this young man who's struggling with his failure and not having it all together in his heart is this. It says, forget the mistake. This is the advice. Just forget about it, forget the mistake. Question. How many of you are really, really good at forgetting a mistake that you make? It just rolls off your back. (laughs) We can't forget the mistake. It's a part of who we are. But this is an example of what our culture is teaching us, our young people, our children, that it's 100% up to you to fix the mistakes, to fix your heart when you experience the brokenness of this world. So we have the Christian worldview over here. We have the cultural worldview over there. How do we make sense of this in our own life? And again, we're, we're thinking about, we're focusing on our identity. Well, Ezra gives us some good advice. Jesus gives us some good advice. Ezra set his heart on the word of God, and that became the foundation for his identity. And as we think about that for our own lives, here's the difference that the gospel actually makes for us compared to the culture. See, according to the foundation of God's word being the source and the rule and norm for our life, we can confidently come before him and come before each other and say, I am sorry, I messed up. And we say a very unpopular thing in our culture. We admit, we say, I'm a sinner. I don't have it all together. I'm broken and I try so hard to be this type of person, but I constantly fail. We admit that before God and one another But it's in that humility you see where the gospel does its work. It's in the humility of admitting that you don't have it all together, that you can't figure out this life, that Jesus himself meets you there. He meets you with grace, with forgiveness, with love. He accepts you despite the fact that you constantly let him down And you constantly hurt other people and you can't live up even to the own standards of your heart He meets you there in love and forgiveness. That's the gospel. It comes It's born out of our humility to admit that we don't have it all together But then when we compare that to the culture we can see that what the culture is doing is really building their foundation with defective parts like that bridge that collapsed. We've made gods out of things like gender and sexuality and marriage and politics. Think of all the different things that are in our culture right now where people are leaning on those things and making those things the source of their identity. The culture is dying because it longs for so much to have the truth that Jesus says, the truth that will set you free. We build our foundation, you see, on something outside of ourselves. It's lasting. It's, it's what is going to change our hearts. It's the gospel. So that's our identity. Now, if we can admit that, that we sometimes struggle with building our identity on that foundation, on the word of God, if we can admit that before him, we can then receive God's grace, and he can propel us for us. He picks us up. He turns us around. He gets us looking the right way, and then we can start thinking about our purpose. Look with me back to John chapter 8. Verse 31, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, if you listen to me, then you are truly my disciples. See, the purpose that we so long for in our life is right here before our eyes. If you're wondering how to live your life in this world what choices to make morally they're going to be the best for you jesus has it right here he says just spend some time with me abide with me and i'm going to fulfill all those longings of your heart and propel you on your way and you're going to see great purpose in this world so that when you go out today and you're having your July 4th barbecue with family with friends with neighbors you're not just going there to celebrate our freedom our independence you're not With God's great purpose in front of you, you're actually going to be the hands and feet of Christ wherever you go in both word and deed. You're bringing his presence to whoever you're hanging out with today based on this foundation. And then one last thing. As you think about Ezra, as I think about Ezra, there's something really interesting with his life. In verse 10, it says that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Now, he's the only leader in Israel's history who doesn't seek out God through some form of one-on-one contact. He doesn't talk face-to-face with the Lord. He doesn't talk with the prophets who explain the ways of God to Ezra. Instead, he does this. He looks at the word of God. This is where he encounters God. Now, this is really important for us because after the time of Ezra, God is silent. There's no more prophets for another 400 years, silent until John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and then Jesus and the apostles. So how do the people seek the Lord's will? How do they find their purpose, rest in their identity? They looked at the Word of God. And then today for us, as we think about the fact that Jesus ascended into heaven 2,000 years ago, the apostles are, are all gone. How do we seek the Lord's will? How do we Rest in that identity, that foundation. We, like Ezra, we build it on something outside of ourselves, the Word of God. May we today, as we leave this place, number one, be encouraged that our identity doesn't rest in our deeds, our words, it rests simply in being children of our Heavenly Father. And then, two, with great purpose, bring that love out into this world, the foundation for all we need is right here. Amen? Amen.